Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 180. I'm your host, Eric Moore. This week, we're going to be talking briefly, because I got some few emails from people about debating the whole recession thing. And I'm going to go explain uh, a comment I made, and somebody asked me a question about it. So I'll, I'll answer that and more about the MBER. And then it seems like there's a war on share buybacks by corporations. And I'll do that second, but uh, Congress announced, it looks like in uh, one of those budget provisions, a 1% excise tax. That's uh, no, not passed yet, but a 1% excise tax charged on companies buying back their shares. So it seems to be, I don't know, buybacks are one of those things where I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about them and what they are, what they are, and what they do. So I'll I'll go through some of those in a little bit of detail. The first thing I wanted to talk about is somebody sent me a note and they said on the podcast last week, I'll link to it in the show notes, where uh, Jay Pestercelli and I talked about, you know, debating a recession. And we went through some of the, the context about what it is the National Bureau of Economic Research looks at to determine whether there is a recession or not. You can listen to that show. So the comment I made, and, and it was really twofold, I think I said to Jay, you know, are we in a recession? I'll let you know in six months. And part of it was understanding that, you know, all these people make predictions and you're in a recession when, you, when you're in a recession. And there's a lot of debate right now about, um, you know, whether two consecutive quarters of negative GDP is a recession, or whether the, uh, you know, other factors, a uh, decline in uh, all these different, uh, you know, different metrics that, uh, that come out. And I said on last week's show that technically a recession is called by the NBER. They have a committee, National Bureau of Economic Research. And they look at things like real personal income, less transfers, non-farm payroll employment, employment as measured by the household survey, real personal consumption expenditures, wholesale, retail sales adjusted for price changes. That means, you know, adjusted for inflation, industrial production. And they've always said there's no fixed rule about what measures contribute to uh, their process or how they're weighted. And I think I read in the recent decades, they put the most weight on Real personal income, less transfers. By the way, real personal income just looks at income adjusted for inflation. So it takes out the rise, in inf- the, the portion that's just due to inflation. Less transfers. And transfers just means government transfer payments. So like when the government sends out checks to people, stuff like that. So, but somebody said, you know, really, what do you mean by I'll let you know in six months? But, you know, I, I didn't get into on the show, but the other thing is, the, the National Bureau of Economic Research, it's a committee, and it's called the Business Cycle Dating Committee. And they make announcements. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. And to give you an example, I went back and I said, okay, let me look at the announcements. And I, I think this is an important point to make because a lot of times you look at a chart and they've got recession shaded in. And you might remember you know, the, the COVID recession, as, as it's called now which was what started in February of 2020, I think, that, uh, that showed up relatively quickly. And I think, you know, we look at this, well, I'll get to the dating, but sometimes you don't know. And to give you an example, so I'm just looking here, 
On December 1st of 2008, the announcement of December of 07 business cycle peak, beginning of last recession. Let me say that again. On December 1st of 2008, uh, the committee announced that December of 2007, a year prior, uh, in the business cycle was the business cycle peak and the beginning of the last recession. So the recession started a year earlier, and officially it was called a year later. And then you kind of look. Now, that was a longer recession. You say, well, okay, well, that's interesting. So when did it end? Well, September 20th. 2010, the announcement of the June 2009 business cycle trough, end of last recession. Let me repeat that again. June 2009 was end of the recession. Officially, it was called September 20 of 2010. So when I said I'll let you know in six months, I might have been a little generous. You know, a lot of times you don't really know officially whether you're in a recession or not until you know, after the fact. So you can, you can look at those, uh, those things I talked about. Those are all readily available on uh, Fred, F-R-E-D. And you can, you can kind of see and track those individual things and see what happens. Uh, I'll, I'm going to link you to also another site I tend to watch a little bit. And that's called Econ PI, meaning like PI, meaning private investigator. Like, you know, Magnum PI only not in Hawaii. And they have a, a grid and they have all these different metrics and they show in a grid whether they are declining, expansion, recovery, or contraction. And then what they have is a median of coordinates and it's this, uh, this red box. You'll see it when, when, uh, if you go to it in the link. And that tracks all these different things and you can kind of see how these are doing. And it changes. I mean, the the medium of coordinates will will go between you know expansion decline, uh, but there's there's some specific language of when recessionary conditions are present. It's when the the MOC of the medium of coordinates are past the peak and moves near baseline. I'll, I'll put that in the link. But anyway, I just wanted to to talk about that briefly because somebody did ask me that question, and yes, I was joking that these things are tough to predict, but also. You don't get an official start and end to recession on the day it starts. It's not like a stock going above 50 or below 50. I'll let you know when it happens because I'll let you know when they announce it. All right. The war on stock buybacks. So stock buybacks in the news, or they will be in the news probably because this came out late Friday, I think. Uh, I think it was late Friday. Yeah, late Friday. So yesterday. Well, you'll listen to this on Sunday, but it was Friday. And they're trying to – Democrats are trying to get this, uh, this package through. And the deal is if you do something through the budget reconciliation process, you don't need to get over the 60-vote the threshold in the Senate to avoid the uh, – what do you call it? Ah, where they, they keep debating and debating and debating. What's, what's that called? Why can't I think of it? Oh, yeah, the, the filibuster, the filibuster. Okay, I don't know why I couldn't think of that. So part of it was they were going to do an end to the, uh, the carried interest deduction. It looks like that's going to not be ended. But instead, they settled on this 1% tax on share buybacks. So personally, I don't – you know, it's, it's always interesting. 
and there's this debate about taxes and whether they matter, whether they hurt some things, whether they cause lower growth. Like if you ever want to see a great example of how taxes do impact things, it's whatever political party's in power, if they don't want something or don't like something, they'll tax it because they want it to decline. And if they do like something, they'll not tax it or give credits. Like part of this bill, I think, is going to be, I don't know if it's $7,500 towards electric vehicles and extending the cap on, on how many vehicles can get this credit. So a tax credit, by the way, is, hey, you do your taxes, and then if you buy this thing, this widget will give you, you know, a couple thousand dollars. And it's almost like it's not a check from the IRS, but it's a credit as if you paid the tax. So if you owed, let's say you owed $7,500 and you had this $7,500 tax credit, I mean, you wouldn't know anything. Anyway, okay. So I don't do taxes on the show, but that's, but I, I, I don't like the fact that, as I said, it, it's a little bit of a war on, on share buybacks because share buybacks are just another way to return capital to investors. And so when you think about it, a company has uh, you know, free cash flow and they say we can reinvest it in the business and you got to look at do we buy an asset and what's the return on that asset. So you know, if it's a coffee shop, we buy this $1,000 espresso machine. I have no idea how much they cost. And you make during the year, you know, $200 on it. Well, that's a, a 20% return on that asset or something like that, right? So one way the companies can reinvest cash is they can reinvest it into assets. They could reinvest it into, you know, research and development, any number of things. But there's a return on that asset, a return on sort of the equity uh, of the company. And sometimes companies look and they say, you know what, I, maybe there aren't great opportunities right now. We're better off just paying it out to shareholders in a dividend, or we can buy a st- our, our shares back. And so dividends are easy. Companies say, we're going to send people a check. It's not really how it works anymore. But they say, we've got these, this extra cash. We're going to do it as a dividend. And dividends normally have they're more predictable a lot of companies have steady dividends or investors like that and there's although in theory a company can do could raise the dividend then lower the dividend then raise it investors generally want more certainty on dividends and so buybacks are an interesting way that they have more flexibility because they can choose to go through a period of buying back stock and they can sort of stop that um and it, it you know, depends on, on the period that, that you're looking at. But when a company buys back shares, so the, the opposite of, let's say, buying back shares is issuing shares. So if you have $10 million in profits and you have a million shares outstanding, $10 million divided by a million is $10 earnings per share. So imagine the company issues another million shares. So now you have 2 million shares outstanding, same $10 million in profits. Uh, now you go from $10 a share to $5 a share. Your existing investors are diluted. And companies issue shares as a way to raise capital. You saw that with some of the meme stocks, AMC, some of the others. I, I just read that AMC is thinking about issuing some preferred shares. But it's, it's, just, it's another way of returning capital to investors, and it's just differently. And a lot of investors actually prefer share buybacks 
um, in taxable investment accounts because if they get a dividend, they're taxed on the dividend. But if there's share buybacks, in theory, you're, you're anti-diluting or you're, non, you're reducing the float. So you're increasing um, – less people are now sharing the net income of the company. And the investor can decide when it is they want to pay the capital gain when they're going to sell the stock. And so companies, if you, if you think about, I mean, let's, let's look at Apple for a second. And if I find this here, there we go. So Apple, let's see, their dividend yield, when is, when is this out of? And of course, the dividend yield is just uh, the dividends per share divided by the stock price. So you pay a dollar, stock price is 100, it's 1%. I think Apple was... Let's see what their, uh, I don't know which year this is. Anyway, I'll, I'll just give you an example. 92 cents in dividends, their stock price 165 and change. The dividend yield was 0.6%. I think this is, what is this as of? Um, okay, this was in year end September of 21. So we don't have the year end of this year yet. Okay. And then there's also something called a buyback yield. And the buyback yield is simply the share repurchases, so buybacks, minus any share issuances divided by the market capitalization of the company. And so if I look at Apple again, we'll use Apple as the example. Uh, it looks like their buyback yield was a just under 4% uh, for year-end September of last year. So 3.9 actually, 3.9, and then their, their dividend yield was 0.6. So you'd say that the total shareholder yield was the buyback yield of 3.9 plus the dividend yield of 0.6 or 4.5%. It's just a different way of, of uh, returning you know, capital to, to investors. So, but there is, it is interesting and I'm going to show you two companies here that and, – and by the way, I'll just say one last thing on this, this 1% excise tax. Some economists or academics have put out some research and some estimates that they think this will cause dividends to go higher. Because think about it. If you're buying back $50 billion of your stock, you know, if you're Microsoft or Apple or one of these companies, and you got to pay 1% on it, okay, you got you got to weigh that now. So some of these uh, these uh, academic pieces say, you know, I think it's going to increase dividends. Others say it could be a hit to earnings per share. Remember my example, when you increase the float, all else equal, meaning net income is the same, you reduce the earnings per share. So we'll know what we know on that, but I think you're going to see some debate on that. So, And if you want an example, I pulled up Walmart, and Walmart's really interesting, and it's like, I'm not saying to buy or sell Walmart. I don't follow the company. <clears throat> you know, I know, I know they have some inventory glut. It sounds like they warned on their earnings, but I, I, it's just, I don't know whether you should buy or sell the stocks. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you one way or another. But here's the interesting thing: 2006, 2005. So their fiscal year ends in March. So March of 2005. They had about 4.233 billion shares outstanding. 
in their quarter, okay, this is more recent, in, in the year-end March of 22, so they already closed their fiscal year of 22, they only had 2.751 billion shares outstanding. So think about that. That is a reduction of, what is that, like 1.5-ish billion shares. So, and you know, obviously this is a podcast. I'm not going to read you off 2005 through 2022. You can kind of look this up. But their share is outstanding. Last year, we're lower than at any point going back to, to 2005. Now, here's what's interesting. Their earnings per share was $4.97. How do you get that? Well, they made $13,673,000 and change, and their shares were $2.7 and change. Take the net income divided by the shares, you get $4.97. Easy enough. But when I look at their net income, they actually haven't uh, – let's see when they – I'm just looking from 2005, the highest year of net income was just under $17 billion in the year ending March of 2013. They haven't crested that since. And that year, you know, they did $5.16 earnings per share. But what's interesting is, you know, they their earnings are down, um, but their EPS is up. And the reason why that is, it appears that they've done some share buybacks. And just for fun, I said, well, what if you took the 2022 net income divided by the, uh, the number of shares in 2005 and the EPS would go from 497 to 323? It's not an indictment of what Walmart's doing with their net income. I, you know, I, I don't follow it that closely. But one of the benefits you see, though, is that by reducing the flow to shares, you reduce the, the amount you have to share with other shareholders if you are a shareholder. So net income can be divided by less shares. All right. So those earnings are worth more on a per share basis than they were when you had more shares. Uh, just taking a look at another company, Amazon is a company I looked in 2000, uh, February 2006. Uh, that's as far back as I looked, 8.338 billion shares outstanding. Okay. By the way, that year they made 359 million. Last year, ending in February 22, they made $33.3 billion in net income. And they have more shares than they've had since 2006, 10.176 billion shares. So they have increased their float and... Uh, it's it's sort of the opposite. So then, you know, a lot of questions come up, like, why would companies do it? And, you know, uh, one way to think about it is, well, if a company thinks their stock is underpriced, wouldn't they go out and buy it? The reality on this, though, is that sometimes when the stock is really low, it's it's around recessions, it's around, you know, big sell-off. Like 2008, you looked at some of the, the levels of the company's uh, shares, you would have thought, wow, I hope they would buy stuff back. They weren't buying back shares in 2008. A lot of them stopped buybacks, you know, you know, preserve cash, preserve their position. Uh, maybe their net income took a big hit. They didn't have the cash to do it. So I don't think companies are really always great about the timing on this. It's just, you know, we don't think we can get a better return by reinvesting this into some assets, some uh, buying a company, doing something, and so we'll return it to ca uh, you know the cash, the shareholders, 
We can do it paying dividends. We can do it buying back the shares. In the end, it's just a different way of returning capital to, uh, to shareholders. Now, I don't know, I don't to, you know, pretend to know either Walmart or uh, Amazon or any companies, you know, really their, uh, their full situation with regards to employee stock-based compensation. So employee stock-based compensation could be stock options. They could be, uh, you know, what else? It could, it could be, uh, you know, you get stock grants, um, you know, those types of things. And those are dilutive at times because the company has to, um, you know, in theory, issue more shares to then give them to, to employees. And I don't know if the reason why Amazon has so many more shares outstanding because they've, they've done a lot of employee-based compensation. A lot of companies use that as a tool to attract you know, really good employees and also to keep them. Anyone's ever worked in a company and you had a vesting schedule on your options, you say, well, I got all these options, but I got to wait a few years uh, before I can actually unlock the value because there's a, a vesting period. So there's just a, a couple things there. It's, it's a little more nuanced, some of this, than, uh, than first appears. The other thing the stock buybacks do help is, remember, I'm, I'm not going to do a whole podcast on return on assets, return on equity. You can Google those, but uh, it, it actually, in theory, increases the return on assets, or ROA, simply because if companies are using cash, let's say they're using cash, you really don't get a return on cash, you know, especially with interest rates really, really low, even though the Fed's raised rates, it's not that much a return on cash. And so if you reduce the cash and that in theory, because the remaining stuff, the remaining assets, your return on those assets actually goes up. So it's one of the metrics that increase. And earnings per share that can go up. I mean, assuming that earnings stay the same or go higher, because again, your numerator denominator, you're dividing the amount of net income a company has uh, minus whatever number of shares are outstanding. So that's uh, that's part of it as well. Um, all right, so I think we covered the the buyback thing again. I'm I'm not in favor of sort of picking and choosing what companies can do, how they can return cash to shareholders. You know, we'll see what the effect is on that. I'll let you know. And by the way, just looking at uh, J.P. Morgan's Guide to the Market, that expansive slide deck that they produce every day and then they reduce quarterly. Uh, you can Google J.P. Morgan's Guide to the Markets. It looks like in 2022 so far, if you look at earnings per share growth, about half a percent of EPS growth is due to share counts being reduced, i.e. buybacks minus issuance for the S&P 500. So that according to uh, to J.P. Morgan. Uh, also, what's interesting too, J.P. Morgan has, oh, I forget what slide it is here, but they, yeah, here it is. It's, uh, if you go to this, it's slide 23, but it's the, the federal finances and it shows 2022 federal budget and only 7%. Okay, so let me explain this. So sources of financing, uh, the spending according to the, the budget office is going to be $5.9 trillion. Uh, that means we'll have to borrow $1.036 trillion, And the rest of it comes from other stuff, social uh, security, you know, the payroll tax, corporate taxes, and income taxes. 
And so of to make up the budget this year, assuming they don't spend more, and well, who would ever think politicians would spend more money than they budgeted for? All right, anyway. So according to this, 18% of the, the spending is going to be derived from borrowing. It's going to borrow that. Deficit keeps going up. 25% will be from the payroll tax or social insurance, as they call it. So that might include Medicare, I think, uh, Medicaid or Medicaid, Medicare tax. Income taxes are the lion's share. So that's about 45%. And then corporate taxes are 7%. So we're going to spend $5.9 trillion, and only $395 billion of that comes from corporate taxes. I know that sometimes we hear a lot of politicians talk about how, oh, if we just increase corporate taxes. I mean, it's it's very little. Remember, you know, corporations pay tax and they pay it out. Individuals pay tax. So there's a lot of different uh, steps in, in the taxation process. But I, I really don't know how much they think they're going to get from this, uh, uh, this excise tax on share buybacks. But I'll let them. Uh, I'll let them talk about that. Uh, the CBO, by the way, is Congressional Budget Office. I believe they only can take inputs. So, if you're one political party and you submit something to to them, um, they <laughs> they have to assume that all your inputs are good. Uh, I'll just leave it there. Like, there's been some interesting outputs by the Congressional Budget Office. Doesn't mean they're they're fudging the numbers. It's just. They're only get, they can only work with certain numbers. They can't make assumptions out of that sometimes. So, but uh, anyway, and and one last thing on the corporate you know tax stuff. A lot of these companies don't have really big margins. Like you look at the margins at Walmart or Costco, their net profit margins are something like you know three to five percent. Uh, it's it's not that much. So, all right. So we'll wrap it up there. Hopefully that answers some questions on. Uh, the NBER, you know, the fact that you'll know when a recession happened after the fact, because they call it. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time on share buybacks, what they are, what they aren't, how they work, and how they affect EPS, and just kind of mentioning this uh, this new 1% excise tax. All right, folks, uh, you can get a hold of me at Derek.Moore at ZegaFinancial.com, D-E-R-E-K dot M-O-O-R-E at Z's and Zebra E's and Eddie G's and George A's and Apple. Financial's up to you to spell correctly. And uh, please do send emails. like getting those and uh, love to hear from listeners. If you have an idea for a future show or a guest, uh, you know, drop me a line. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely impart. I always bring in listener questions into the uh, podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Talk to you next week.